Hi, this is Pastor Jim. Thanks for joining us for this week's message from Riverside Church. I believe you will be inspired and blessed by the Word of God. We'd love to welcome you to one of our services next time you're in the Brisbane area. If you'd like to know more about us, go online at www.riversidecc.org.au or like us on Facebook to hear about up-and-coming events. I hope you enjoy the message. God bless you. You can believe the year is going so fast. August uh, at Riverside Church, as you might know, is Miracle Month. Uh, Why Miracle Month? Because for longer than I've been coming to Riverside, uh, we as a church have sown into the life of the church beyond our generation for the future. And this building and this land that has been claimed for Jesus is a miracle. It truly is a miracle. And if you don't know the story about how we came to uh, be here in Choma, I encourage you to speak to Pastor Jim and Pastor Pavey and you'll be amazed at what God did to get us uh, in this community, have a home here. It's quite incredible. So it is Miracle Month. God did a miracle for us to be here. And we are in a series looking at giving. And as Pastor Pavey said last week, giving is probably the least talked about topic in our church. Uh, we, we're important. Giving is important. Giving of yourself, giving your time, being people who sow and serve other people is important. But we never ever speak about giving financially at this church because it's such a generous church. But the truth is giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship and we are here to worship God, yes? Here to worship God. Giving is an act of worship. So it needs to be talked about. We need to look at giving and what biblical giving really is. Jim began this series by looking at some people in the Bible looking at Abraham and Paul and Rebecca and talking about giving is about honour, it's about joy, it's, about, it's a spiritual act, about giving freely. And then last week, Pastor Pavey uh, gave us perspective. She asked the question, where do you put your treasure? Speaking about the world's economy versus heaven's economy, the temporal versus the eternal, putting God's kingdom first. And so with that foundation in mind, with the right attitude and having the right perspective, We've got to ask the question this morning, how should we give? How should we give? That's the question I'm asking this morning. How should we give? What should our giving look like? And I want to preface this message by saying this. Jesus came to change the world. Do we agree? Jesus came to change the world, yes? He came humbling himself as a servant to change the world, to change the mindset of people. He came to teach us about changing our attitude towards God, our attitude towards ourselves, and our attitude towards our relationship with our Creator. He came that we would see our lives differently. We would look at ourselves differently, we look at God differently. We would look at ourselves in light of He who is the light of the world. That we would see how we are to live differently because of He who gave His life for the world. And in Luke 6, we see this Jesus challenging perspectives, challenging people, talked about loving your enemies, judging others, bearing good fruit. And Luke 6 really is just a, an abbreviation of Matthew, the Sermon of the Mount. Luke 6 is where we, have saw, we see an abridged version. And in Luke 6, he says this, verse 37, it says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and you will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, we put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Let's pray this morning. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you with open hearts. We come to you to ask you, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to us in this message? I pray for every person here that they would have an open heart, they would have an open mind, they would be freely receiving what you have for them, that you would challenge us, motivate us, and encourage us through your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to giving, Jesus had a lot to say. He had a lot to say about giving. And he wanted to change the world's perspective on giving. The word, God's word, has much to say about giving as well. God wants us to understand how we should give so that he is glorified. Because our lives are truly about glorifying him and nothing else. It's about living for him. And so this morning, I'm going to give you four stories. Four events in the life of God's people. Two from the Old Testament and two from the New Testament. And each one reveals to us a godly principle about how we should give. God teaching us how we should give. So how should we give? Well, firstly, number one is that we give our best. You need to give your best. Give your best. In a minute, we're going to put up a verse, but I want to give you a backstory about this verse that we're going to read. It's a very long story, so I'm going to give you an abridged version, and we're going to look at the story later on. It takes place in 2 Samuel, and it takes place in the life of King David. I love that Jackie got up and spoke about King David, because God obviously has something to say when people are on the same page. It comes at a time when God's people are not doing very well in terms of God's eyes. God's people are disobedient. God has, is frustrated with his people. Uh, he is once again dealing with rebellion, dealing with disrespect. And at this time, David, who was king, decided to take a census of all the fighting men in Israel and Judah. He wants to count them. He wants to know how many he has. That's not a big deal, right? I mean, if you're the king, it kind of makes sense that you know how big your army is. How many people do have fighting for us? That's a good thing to know if you're a king, yes? It's a good thing to know. But the thing is, it was a big deal. And it was such a big deal that Joab, who was the commander of the army, actually questioned David about what he was doing. He was like, David, this is not a good idea. You shouldn't be counting the people. Joab was bold enough to question his king. And not just Joab, the other commanders of the army questioned David as well. But David wasn't having it. I'm king, I'll do what I want. I will count the people. And so he sends Joab and the commanders of the army out to count all the fighting men in Israel and Judah. It takes 10 months. 10 months. They travel all around counting the fighting men. And only after the count was done, not any time during the 10 months, only after he's finished, does David go, oh, that wasn't a good idea. I think I made a mistake. Only after he was finished did he realize his error. David actually says these words. He says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. That's what he says. He makes that realization. When we think of David's sin, what's the first sin you think of? It's Bathsheba, right? Yes, Bathsheba. You think, that's pretty bad, adultery with another man's wife. You think Uriah, he sent him to his death. That's pretty bad. Murder, adultery, they're pretty bad sins. But David didn't realize he'd done anything wrong until Nathan pointed it out to him. But here... David makes the realization, I have sinned greatly by counting his army. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal? The big deal is this. It's not his army. It doesn't belong to him. It's God's army. 
He has no right to count God's army. It doesn't belong to him. It's not his. The only one who can call a census is God. God's the one who is in control. But David, who has been tempted by Satan, took matters into his own hands. Temptation came from the enemy and David made a choice. Now the reason for counting God's army, I pointed out a few weeks ago. I did a sermon on overcoming your burdens, if you remember that. And I spoke about you know, the, the coin in the fish's mouth. Remember that, yes? And we talked about that was the temple tax, also known as the ransom tax, which comes from Exodus 30. And in Exodus 30, David points out, he sets the guidelines for how to take a census. And what you must do is when you take a census of the fighting men, you have to collect a tax from each of the men. They've got to give a half shekel to atone for their sin. That is the standard. That is what God set out. Did David do that? No. No, he didn't. David didn't take any tax. He just wanted to know how big his army was to make himself feel better. He took no tax, so therefore nothing went back to God. Nothing went back to God. He counted something that did not belong to him, and he took no tax in direct disobedience to God's instructions. And so David has sinned, and therefore there must be a cost. Because sin always has a cost, yes? Always has a cost. There must be judgment. And so David is given three choices. There has to be judgment. Here's your three choices, David. You can have three years of famine, three months of war where you're pursued by your enemies, or three days of plague. Which does David choose? The three days of plague. It's the shortest one. That makes sense. That's not the reason why David chose the three days of plague. Maybe it was part of the reason. David makes the best choice. And why is it the best choice? Because if he chooses the other two, it's not fair. If David chooses three years of famine, he's the king. He can shield himself and his family from the worst consequences of the famine. He's the king. He's wealthy. He has money. He can shield himself from the consequences of famine. Or if he chooses war, David was pretty old by this point. He was coming to the end of his life. There was already a law in place that stopped David from going to war. He wasn't allowed to fight anymore. And so if he goes to war, David is protected. He won't have to fight. Choosing the plague is the only option that puts David on the same playing field as everyone else because plagues do not discriminate. A plague can affect anybody, rich or poor. David makes the best choice because he puts his life in the hands of God, not into his own hands or the hands of men. He puts his life in the hands of God. It's the best choice. The possibility exists that David will not be spared. That's the price he pays for his sin. Now pick up the story now in 2 Samuel verse, chapter 24, verse 18. So you know the background. This is where we pick up the story. It says this, And Gad came that day, thank you, Abby, put that up, verse 24, verse 18 to 25 it is, And Gad came up that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. So David went up to Gad's word and as the Lord commanded. And when Aronah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming towards him, and Aronah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. Next slide, thank you, Abby. Uh, next one. And Aaron said, 
Why has my lord the king come to his servant, David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, so that the plague may be averted from the people? Then Aaron said to David, Let the Lord my king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing floor, threshing sledges, and the yokes of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aaron gives to the king. And Aaron said to the king, May the Lord God accept you. But the king said to Aaron, No, I will not. I will I'll buy it from you for a price. I will buy it from you. I will not offer burnt offerings to my Lord the God that cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. David was given a choice, another choice. Aaron was happy to give David everything he asked for. I'll give you the land, I'll give you the building, I'll give you the floor, I'll give you the oxen, I'll give you the wood. You can have it all. And David as king could have easily been in his right to take it. He's the king. But David knows the truth. And the truth is this. Offerings that cost nothing are not worth anything. Offerings that cost nothing are not worth anything. David buys the building, the land, the oxen, the wood, and builds an altar. David, despite his sin, gives his best. He made the best choice, one that put himself at risk. And then he ensures that his offering to God is not some freebie that has no value or worth, but it was the best that he could offer. When we give our best, God responds. God accepted David's offering and the plague ended. There are two things we learn from David here about giving our best. The first one is our best leaves a legacy. We give our best, your best leaves a legacy. What is remarkable is that David, giving his best, left a legacy. That same land that David bought was the same land that Solomon would use to build the palace, to build the temple. That piece of land would end up being the home of the temple of God that Solomon built. This amazing building. God's home amongst his people. Was started simply by David giving his best to save the people. So when we give our best, we sow into that which has not yet come to pass. We sow into what God is doing long after we've gone. Generations beyond us. When we give our best, we show the next generation what it means to be a child of God, to belong to his kingdom. And as people who belong to his kingdom, we give, we sow, we plant, we give our best. And God will respond. Also, we know that our best is costly. Our best is costly. David didn't take the cheap road. His offering was costly. Sin has a cost, our best has a cost. For here, David's sin cost the lives of 70,000 people. 70,000 people died from that plague because of David's sin. But also, the best is costly. David gave. He bought everything at a good price. He bought everything so that it would be worth. So it cost David something. There's always a cost involved when we give our best. But when we put God first, when we choose him over the world, when we choose him over ourselves, 
The cost is worth it. The best things in life are not free. The best things in life are not free. They come at a cost. God knows this better than any of us. Our salvation came at the life of his son. The best thing in life was not free. But it was worth it. It was worth it. Because our best is worth the cost as well. So how should we give? We give our best. How should we give? We give obediently. Number two, we give obediently. Our second story comes from Saul, the other king. Saul was probably known for a few more mistakes than David made, a few errors of judgment in his time as king. And in 1 Samuel 15, which we'll get to in a second, the Lord spoke to Saul through the prophet Samuel, and Saul was ordered to destroy the Amalekites. That was the order. That was God's command. Destroy the Amalekites. Totally wipe them out. Leave nothing behind. Take nothing with you. They need to be gone. See, the Amalekites had a history of violence against God's people. They hated God. They hated God's people. They were descended from Esau, the brother of Jacob. They were an enemy of God's people. They attacked God's people shortly after they entered the Promised Land, after they left Egypt. In Exodus 17, God declares war against the Amalekites that will last generations, it says. Generations. So by the time, by the time we get to Saul, God has long suffered the Amalekites. They've had their chances. And now their sin, their animosity towards God and God's people must be dealt with. There must be judgment. And so Saul is given the task to wipe them out. And so Saul takes his men and they go. And Saul does exactly what God said, yes? No, no, he didn't. Saul, in his own wisdom, spares the king Agag. And he takes livestock for himself. He decides what should be destroyed and what shouldn't be destroyed in complete disobedience of God's command. And in 1 Samuel 15, verse 19, we read this. We're on the screen here. It says, same as Samuel speaking to Saul. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission to which, to which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said this, this is great. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than that of the fat of the rams. I love Saul. It was the people. They took everything. I didn't do anything wrong. I did what I was told. It was the people. I love what Saul says. He says, they cannot sacrifice to your God. He didn't say, my God. He said to Samuel, your God. And that's everything we need to know about Saul right there. Saul was disobedient. He decided he knew better and ignored God's instruction. If you read 1 Samuel, you think to yourself from a worldly point of view, oh, I understand what he did. He saved some people. That's nice. I can kind of justify him doing this or doing that. But the truth is, 
We can't put a price what it means to obey God. We cannot put a price on obedience. We don't have to understand what God is doing. We don't have to have it all figured out. All we need to do is obey. That's all God asks for us. Obey. Better is obedience than sacrifice that means nothing. If you're sacrificing out of religion or duty, it's worth nothing. What's worth more is obedience. Serving God means this. It means this. Doing the will of God in the right way. Doing the will of God in the right way. That's all it is. Doing His will. Even if it doesn't make sense to us. We, we have to believe. We trust that God is doing something bigger, better, beyond our comprehension. That we can't see. But if we obey. If we obey God, we know that God will use our willingness, our obedience and our gifts given correctly to bring to fruition his plans and purposes. We have to give obediently. How should we give? We give obediently. Number three, how do we give? We give honestly. We have to give honestly. We're going to jump straight into this account because it's well known. A well-known account from the early church. Acts 5, verse 1. We should all know this. So if you put that up, thank you very much. It's a great story. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the disciples' apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It's a tough portion of scripture. There's lots to question about what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. Why sell a property you don't have to? It was theirs. Why sell it? Why then hide some of the money and present what you presented as the whole amount? Why do that? Why lie to God and his church? It's hard to pinpoint exactly the motivations of Ananias and Sapphira. But what we do know is this. We do know in Acts 4 that Barnabas, Barnabas sold a piece of land and he took all the proceeds and he laid that money at the apostles' feet, everything he got. I have no doubt that this gesture of generosity and giving to the church was well received. People would have looked on and gone, wow, how amazing, what an amazing servant of God. And Barnabas was an amazing servant of God. And perhaps Ananias and Sapphira, looking on, thought to themselves, that's the kind of attention that I want. I want to be well received like Barnabas. 
We do know that their sin was fueled by Satan. That's what Peter says. Have let Satan into your hearts, Peter said. So we know Satan tempted them. They made the choice. Satan didn't force them. It was their choice to lie and to deceive. We also know that they're Christians. Not pretenders, not fakes, because Peter declares that they've lied to the Holy Spirit. So they must have the Holy Spirit within them. They must have received the Spirit of God through salvation. These people are pillars of the church. They're in the early church. They're part of the early movement. They're not pretenders. The other question people ask is this. How does God strike down two people over a business transaction? Isn't that a little bit harsh? How does a loving God do that? I'll answer your question with this. God loves his church. God loves his church. Satan's only goal is to destroy the church. That's his only goal, is to destroy the church. And if he can't defeat the church from the outside, he will do it from the inside, through people already there. Satan's only option is to attack from within. Ananias and Sapphira were influential people in the early church. But their hearts were not right with God. They weren't kingdom first focused. And that's all the foothold that Satan needed to get in. God will protect his church at all costs. The church is the bride of Christ. He will protect it because he loves it. And those who are willing to lie and deceive the very spirit of God have no place in his church. No place in the building of his people. It may seem harsh. And I'm sure this very account has caused some people to question God or question their faith. But we have to remember that God's judgment of Ananias and Sapphira is also God's judgment of Satan as well. God is setting the example. He's making an example of them and an example of Satan. I will not have deception in my church. I will deal with it. God loves his church. And secondly, God sets the standard. God sets the standard. God has always been the one who set the standard for his people. What we see in Acts 5 is nothing new. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. All we see in Acts 5 is something that God has always done. At every new stage in the salvation of God's people, when something has happened to draw a relationship closer together between God and his people, God has dealt with sin harshly and quickly. I'll give you two examples. Leviticus 10. The tabernacle is raised. God's meeting place amongst his people. And then two men, Nadab and Abihu, brought unauthorized fire to God. And so he strikes them down. Immediately. Because they disobeyed. They didn't do it the right way. They disobeyed God. And God dealt with them. Joshua 7. Achan. The plunder from Jericho. He hid some in his tent. Remember? The beautiful Babylonian coat and some gold. He hid in his tent. God strikes down Achan as well. Because he disobeyed God. All we see in Acts 5 is simply what God has always done. When he's drawn near to his people and a new relationship is forming, a new, a, new, a new wave of salvation, if you want, 
God deals harshly with sin because he's setting the standard for his people. There will be no deception in my house, God is saying. Our giving has to be honest, genuine, and kingdom-centered. There is no place for half-heartedness or wrong motivations. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Of course not. If we could be perfect, Jesus didn't need to die. We don't have to be the best models of giving all of the time. But what God does want is to have the right motivation. The right motivation when we give. To be honest with him and transparent with him and each other. To follow the standard that he has set. The standard we see in his word and the standard we see in his son. So how should we give? We must give honestly. And lastly, how do we give? We give expectantly. We give expectantly. Our last example comes from Paul's dealing with the church at Corinth. The Corinthian church has been encouraged. They've been encouraged to give to the church in Jerusalem. The Christians in Jerusalem, the ministry in Jerusalem. Paul is trying to get churches to give, to bless them as they minister in this most important city. And so he's encouraging the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church enthusiastically responds. They boast they're going to give this great gift. They were going to sow into this, into this ministry. It's a boasting. It's enthusiasm. And then Paul uses their enthusiasm to encourage other churches to give. The church of Macedonia, they, they are encouraged to give because of the Corinthians boasting about how much they're going to give. And now a year goes by. A year goes by. And the Macedonian church, they have given. They've given to that ministry. The Corinthian church... They didn't give anything. All this boasting and enthusiasm, nothing. They gave nothing. And so Paul writes to them in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 9, we read this. It's quite a well-known verse again. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. It says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We all know that. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Whatever the reason for the Corinthian church's lack of giving, lack of follow-through, Paul's message is this. Remember God's goodness. Remember his goodness. God wants you to be a cheerful giver. And we can be a cheerful giver. Why? Because God gives in all sufficiency, in all things, at all times. So you may abound in every good work. Everything you need to serve God, God gives you. He will give you everything you need. That is how good he is. Remember in Luke 6, in Luke 6 Jesus says, Give and it will be given to you. That's what Jesus said. God always gives. Maybe it's not money or material resources, but it will be sufficient for your needs as you serve him. He will give you exactly what you need to serve him. Your giving will bless you. Your giving will bless you. Now, when I say that, I'm not trying to preach a prosperity gospel. That's not what I'm doing. A prosperity gospel is where you give so you get. You understand that, yes? People teach you give so you get. That's not what the Bible says. That's not where our motivation should be. 
It's the wrong motivation. We don't give to get. As Robert Morris says, we get to give. We get to give. It's a privilege. It's an honor. We get to give because he has given to us. We don't give to get. We get to give to other people. And God will use our gift to bless others. Paul is reminding us that when we give cheerfully, openly, without reluctance, we are blessed because we're able to give. We have already received his grace. And if we receive nothing else, that should always be enough. Pastor Pavia said it last week. God gave us his son. If he gave us nothing else, he's already outgiven anything we could give back. The truth is, God knows. This is why God talks about giving. He knows that when we give, we are free. We are free from the burden of the world chasing money, chasing wealth, chasing materialism. People chase it because that's their economy. But when we give, we free ourselves from having to be tied to those things. God understands and he wants to free us so we aren't burdened by trying to take and keep trying to withhold. God will always give what we need to bring him glory. In each of these examples I've given, they reveal to us how we should give. But they also share something else in common. Each of these examples that we've examined give us the key to giving, but also warn us of the one thing that will eat away at our giving. Because each event is really about this. It's about trust versus pride. Trust versus pride. That's what this story is about, trust versus pride. In every story we read, we can see those who trusted God and those who let pride get in the way. The truth is we give because we trust God. That's why we give. We give because we trust God because he gave his son. If you didn't believe that God gave his son, if you didn't trust God, you wouldn't give, would you? Why would you give if you didn't trust God? That makes no sense. We give because we trust him. And if you did give out of some sort of compulsion, out of some sort of duty, out of religion, then you're giving out of the wrong motivation. You're giving because you think, if I give, God will like me. If I give, God will save me. That's not how it works, people. It's not how it works. God has already saved us. He already likes us through Jesus. David, even after his sin, chose the one consequence that put him in harm's way. It was the best choice, also the shortest choice. He trusted in his God. He chose the one thing that put himself in the hands of God so that he would trust his Lord. As a direct opposite, Saul did not trust God. He trusted in himself. Saul was proud. He trusted in his own decisions. Ananias and Sapphira didn't trust God. They wanted to look good. It was about pride. The Macedonian church trusted God. The Corinthian church did not. They held back. Here is my question. Will you trust God or will you hold back? He is the one who gives freely. Matthew 10, you've freely received, so freely give. I heard Ken say that this morning. 2 Corinthians tells us that his righteousness endures forever. 
It is up to us to choose to give our best, to give obediently, honestly, and expectantly, as He provides all we need to fulfill His plans and purposes for our life. We give because we trust God. But on the flip side, our trust is eroded by pride. Our trust is eroded by pride. If trust is the key to giving, then pride is the thing that will take it away. In every story, we see pride come and destroy the foundations of faith. For David, it was pride that led him to count his army. Well, not his army, God's army. It was pride that caused Saul to disobey. It was pride that caused Ananias and Sapphira to sin. The Corinthian church, their prideful boasting came to nothing. We can never let pride take our focus away from trusting in him. When I ask the question, how should we give? The answer is actually really quite simple. I could have said it at the start and saved us all this time. How should we give? We should give like God gives. You see, God gives us the greatest example of giving. God gave us the standard for giving, for all of us to follow. He who gave his son so that no one would perish. God gave his best. The perfect lamb of God. He gave his only son. He gave his best. Jesus, who was God in flesh on earth, gave obediently. He gave obediently to death, to death on a cross. He obeyed the will of the Father. God gave us truth. He gave honesty. He's given us his truth, his word, plain for everyone to see, the word in flesh. And Jesus gave his life expectantly. He gave and he said those words, it is finished. Why? Because he knew. He knew if he gave his life, people could come back to God. He made a way where there was no way. He gave in the expectation that people would turn from their sin and come back to God. And the church was born. A church that we are all part of because we have turned back to him. God gave his best. God gave obediently. God gave truth. God gave in expectation. He set the standard. And all we need to do is follow his example. God expects nothing from us that he first hasn't done himself. And that's the truth. He only expects you to do what he has already done. So let's finish there where we started, Luke 6. We're going to end with Jesus' words. Luke 6, verse 47 says this, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against it and that house, against the house, and could not shake it because it had been well built. For those of us who trust in God and give as God has given, we are like a house that is well built. And the water will not shake us. That is God's promise. When we give, we give as God gives. No more, no less. We give our best, 
obediently, honestly, in great expectation that our God of all sufficiency in all things at all times, who gives freely to those in need, whose righteousness endures forever, he gave us the example and the standard to follow. He wants us to trust him wholeheartedly in all the ways and in every area we give. We need to give our best because God gave his best. Amen? I'm going to ask the musicians if they have come this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. It's not easy to talk about giving. But what is easy is to look in his word and see exactly what God wants from us. To see the standard that he set for us. To know that God doesn't expect any more from us that he's already given. God is so invested in us understanding giving because he knows the power of withholding. The power it has over over our lives. Giving is to set us free. If God withheld his son, then we would all perish. But he didn't. He gave freely. So freely you have received, freely give. Let's pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for your Son, whom you freely gave to us. We thank you that he gave obediently, that he followed your will, that he was obedient to the point of death, to death on a cross. He gave his life so that we could be free. You gave us truth. You were honest with us. You revealed the truth to us. You showed us who you are so that we could see you plainly. You've given us your truth that we must follow it. The truth that shows us the standard you have set, that shows us how we must follow you. And you gave in expectation. You gave knowing that it was the only way that Jesus had to pay the price for our sin so that we could come to you openly and freely and call you Father. You would call us sons and daughters. You gave an expectation knowing that the church would be born and your gospel would be shared and people would come to the saving knowledge of who Jesus is and they would turn from their sin and turn back to you, God, who made us. Lord, I encourage each one of us to give as you have given, to give freely, to give our best, to give in obedience, to give openly and honestly, no deception in your house, and to give an expectation that we know that giving sets us free. It sets us free. That's what you came. You came to set us free. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray for people out there, people here, who have not yet given their life to Jesus. Maybe you didn't know this morning that Jesus came to set you free, that God gave his son his best freely and openly. I would ask this morning that you look at Jesus on the cross and know that he died for you. And all you need to do is respond. All you need to do is say, God, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for living my own life separate from you. 
I'm letting pride dictate how I live my own way. God, forgive me for my sin. I turn away from my sin and I give my life to Jesus. Jesus, come and be Lord of my life. I give myself to you. I believe that you are the Son of God and you died on the cross for me. Help me to live for you from this point on. That's all we need to do. And we become children of God. And if that is you this morning, I encourage you to come see one of us. If there's you at home, contact us. And Lord, as I pray for each person, I pray, Lord, we will go from this place. We will go from this place with a new mindset because, Jesus, you came to change the world. You came to change our mindset, to change our perspective. I pray, Lord, we will go from this place thankful. New revelation of what you've given your son, Jesus. Help us to be people who give freely and do not withhold. Help us to be people who trust in you wholeheartedly and not hold back. Help us to be people who give our best, who give obediently, who give honestly, and who give in expectation as you are the God of all sufficiency in all things at all times for every good work so that we can glorify and serve you all of our days. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. I encourage you this morning. Give freely. Because freely you have received. I thank you for watching this morning. Great to have you with us. God bless and have a great week. Thanks for listening today. I hope you subscribe to the podcast so you can be inspired weekly. God bless and have a great day.